Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... I mean, if you look at the size of the beauty industry, like it's still, what is it, like an $11 billion industry. So there's so far for us still to go that we want to have, you know, we want to have the best, the best brains in Australia on this and, you know, be able to grow without the constraints that we had for the first, you know, 20 years or so. In part two of my chat with Kate Morris, the founder of online beauty website Adore Beauty, that's now a publicly listed company, Kate reveals how you keep it together when there's massive growth. Adore Beauty went from $16 million in sales in 2016 to a whopping $122 million in sales in 2020, with now 590,000 active customers. And she talks of how the 2020 COVID pandemic actually dealt them a very strong hand. Kate Morris, once you got through the enormous challenges of those early years, how then did you manage the scale up and ensure resilience in your business? You said before that, you know, you really kind of grew fast around 2012-13. Mhm mhm yeah so we so we did need to raise some capital at that point so we sold 25% of the business to Woolworths and you know the idea behind that being you know we knew we needed some capital to kind of get over the next sort of scale hump we needed to be able to put in a layer of management because it just got to the point where we you know with me and James trying to do everything it was you know very unwieldy I mean we you know can't have 25 direct reports it's not very doesn't really work and so the idea was to to get some capital into the business to just kind of get over that that hump and then also too in addition to that capital was to I guess get access to you know, some some mentoring and advice from a business that certainly was at the time and probably still is, you know, the biggest online retailer in the country mm. and, you know, with a huge database of, of customers and we thought, well, that probably sounds like some smart money. I think that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so you sold 25% to them. You got mm-hmm. the benefit, presumably, of a lot of this great depth of knowledge and particularly online knowledge at Woolies. Mm-hmm in yep. 2015, but you later bought that stake back. Does that indicate yes. that you might have regretted the tie-up? Oh, no, I didn't regret it at all. I still don't. I think it was more, so I think we're at the, certainly at the start, we were very much aligned strategically on what we wanted to, you know, both be able to achieve with with the partnership. I think, you know, the reality of of sort of dealing with any large corporate is that, you know, things can change and we were just a very 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 tiny part you know of strategy sure. for them and obviously it's a business you know obviously the supermarkets and the liquor division and and all that like there were there were just much bigger things going on than the door there and i think over time strategically that that alignment probably wasn't there after a while and so we just we just kind of had a chat with them and and 
just you know decided to go our separate ways. So it was a um, what does Gwyneth call it? Conscious uncoupling. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't you know there was amicable. No, it was very amicable, yeah. It was, there was sort of no hard feelings. It was yeah. just like, oh, well, we kind of were both going in this direction, but now we're probably not, so it's probably not going to work. So, All right. So around that sort of, uh, I don't know, 2015 time when you were still getting the benefit of the Woolworths tie-up, mm-hmm. were you and James still really making all the key decisions or had you taken on some other sort of heft, if I can use that word, in form of people with business, management training, experience. I mean, obviously the Woolies people, I guess. But how big a support has your partner been in this whole process? Yeah, certainly at that time, I think we were still very much driving all the decisions. So although we did, we were able to, you know, hire some some smart people into the business. So that was that was really good. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I, a lot of people say to me, oh, how can you work with your partner? You know, people say things like, oh, look, I could never work with my husband. We'd kill each other or things like that. And I don't know, I, I feel like our skill sets have always just been really complementary. And and so it's always just, <laughs> just worked really well, actually. Mm. And, you know, we have always talked well and communicate well and, and I actually you know, I think it must be really hard to be a solo founder because, you know, who are, who are you going to, who are you going to vent to at the end of the day? Do you, you know, at least yeah. with us both involved in the business, at least we didn't get bored of talking about it. So. Yeah. Was there one move around this time or a couple of moves that really boosted your growth and your sales revenue? Because you did have a Fairly fast scale up, what, from about 2015-16? Oh, look, it was, yeah, so it was pretty fast from, so we, we took on Woolies money at the end of 2014. So from then on, it was pretty much foot to the floor. And it was more about sort of removing some of the constraints that we had around cash flow, you know, being able to bring in enough inventory, being able to bring in you know, some some good hires, being able to actually do a bit of, you know, a bit more marketing than, you know, than we'd ever really been able to do before. All of those things. I mean, you know, it was really more just actually being able to scale up what we were doing so that we could just go a bit faster. So we didn't need to kind of pivot the entire business. It was just, we just need to do more of everything. And, and once we had some cash into the business, we were able to do that. Yeah. So is it true that sales grew something like sixfold in four years? That would probably be roughly true. Yeah. I'm just thinking in when the two years that we had Willings as a shareholder, it, it tripled the size of the business. So yeah, look, it, that would probably be pretty right. So what it ended up was something like 16 million in sales in 2016 to how much in 2020? Did you reach the 100 million that I think was forecast? 122, Helen. Oh, wow. Yeah. So how difficult was that? Or was it just, okay, we've done this before. We've struggled for the first perhaps 15 years. Um, now we, we're we ready to go and, and grab this growth. It's a different kind of difficult. So it still is hard. Scaling is hard. And sometimes, you know, when you're scaling really fast, there's, there's sort of stages that each business goes through where suddenly just sort of everything breaks, you know, all of your systems that worked okay when you had 30 people do not work when you have 100 people. And so it's, it's just a mm. constant, you know, 
reshaping and, and rebuilding, but it's, you know, what's that entrepreneur saying? It's like trying to, you know, you know, jump off a cliff and build your plane on the way down. It is mm. very much like that. And so, so it's hard, but in a different way, it's, it's a lot more fun than the, than the sort of scary times where you're going to run out of money or, or even, even much more fun than the very early days where you just, trying to actually get things moving like I, I actually I love the feeling of when the business is going too fast like I love that <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure because I mean apart from anything else you're seeing no doubt happy customers otherwise they wouldn't be coming back and you're seeing money go into the bank so you can pay all your workers etc oh yes and all of that and also you know watching watching the people in your team grow and I mean that's that to me is amazing like that to me is one of the coolest coolest bits because when you see people who've maybe been with you for you know for five or seven years really go from strength to strength and grow and achieve new things and take on challenges that you're sure they couldn't have done a couple of years ago that's amazing that's Mm. really fun that's brilliant. So, so Kate, in this time, your Adore online retail platform stole market share from those traditional existing high street, high-end department store retailers like Meyer and David Jones. And still are department stores from the research that we have would be, yes, not, certainly they're not gaining in, in market share anymore and in, and in some categories more than others. So have you expanded your online presence beyond Australia and New Zealand or are there plans afoot for that? Well, it's really interesting because of, I mean, we're still at the moment, we're just selling in Australia and New Zealand, but from what we can see, because of course, all of the content that we've created, you know, like our podcast and our BDIQ blog and our YouTube channel, this content actually is drawing viewers or, or listeners from all around the world. I think it of was course. someone told me a couple of weeks ago that our podcast was number four in beauty in Hungary. So it's fantastic. <laughs> so that's, that's been really fascinating is, is seeing, you know, it was like number 12 in the UK or, or something like that. And, and so that's really amazing. And, and I think that, you know, can to those us obviously. Cus- can those customers buy from you and do you send to those countries? Not yet. They can't, but we certainly would see that. I mean, if you've got customers kind of coming to you already just because of the content that you're building, then obviously that's, that's a great opportunity for the future. Yeah, Kate, I just wanted to ask you about sort of culture and values, and it sounded like at the beginning of our conversation, your culture and values were really set in stone from the earliest of days. I mean, how important is culture and your values to you? Well, actually, I don't think we did have it set in stone from from early on. I think that was a learning that we had during the scaling process, and that was probably one of the most painful bits. And, you know, I think it was a year where we went from 12 staff and, you know, we're sort of all in the same room and we're like a little family and then we went up to like 25. And when was that? And um, maybe... Maybe that was 2012-ish, maybe 2011. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could pinpoint it on the year. But, uh, you know, for, and there ended up being, you know, some, some personality clashes, which were actually, you know, and we worked this out sort of later in the fallout, but, you know, really actually value clashes. And, it was, you know, it was not a very nice time and there was sort of three or four months where the office was a pretty unpleasant 
place to be. And then after, after that experience, we all sat down as a team and went, right, nobody wants that happening again. That was not very fun. How do we do a better job of enunciating our values and being very clear on those so that we can make sure that everybody in this organisation, as we grow bigger, understands what sorts of behaviours we expect? How can we make sure that we keep all the good things about our culture and that we don't bring in bad things? And so we sat down as a team and went through a few sessions actually to come out with sort of a distilled list of values of how we do things at a door. But that's just been such a core part of how we've been able to scale to where we are. And we have a team of about 200 now and, you know, and a very highly engaged team. And I think we've only been able to do that because of the work that we did to, you know, to enunciate what kind of culture and values and what sort of a company we wanted to be. And just really briefly, can you enunciate what that is in one line? Not in one line, I can give it to you in four lines. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's four. It's doing the right thing. It is always growing. It is working for each other and a positive approach. And so really what that what that means, you know, doing the right thing is sort of sounds like a no-brainer, but is actually one of the one of the hardest ones because it means we do the right thing by each other, yeah. by our suppliers, by our customers, by the environment. Even when that's a bit difficult, we, you know, a positive approach is about not being positive all the time. It's not like being Pollyanna, but it's more how do we make the best assumptions about people and about situations? How do we come with, you know, solutions and not just complain about problems? You know, growing means how are we always pushing ourselves outside of our comfort zone and giving ourselves permission to fail and try new things and, and, you know, and having courage in doing that. And then working for each other means, you know, we all pitch in and we all, there's no, I think it's a very high performance culture, but it's not a competitive one. It's actually a really supportive one. And so it's not about trying to elbow past, you know, the, mm. one of your colleagues it, how can you help them out? How can we how can we bring everyone a little bit higher? And and there's nobody in this organization that is, you know, too important to unstack the dishwasher when it's their team's turn. You know, all that kind of thing. So fantastic. Kate, you debuted on the Financial Review Young Rich List in 2018 with an estimated wealth they very helpfully published of $30 million. Now, Mm -hmm. this does become very public. So how did that make you feel? Uh, Very uncomfortable. (laughs) Why uncomfortable? Oh, look, I mean, for starters, it's, you know, that I mean, that whole thing, like they just... They just, you know, they make it up and, and, you know, make estimates and people are like, oh, well, you know, you've got $30 million. It's like, well, I certainly didn't have it in my bank account. Yeah. You know, it was all tied yeah. up in the business and I don't know, it's, I guess I was never doing this for the money. I think that's, you know, that's absolutely the wrong reason to go into entrepreneurship full stop is, you know, it was always actually just being, being really passionate about the problem that I wanted to solve and then also the kind of company that we wanted to build. 
in September 2019, you sold a 60% stake to Quadrant Private Equity. Now, how difficult was that decision? Because this was to sell most of your baby, your business baby. Yeah. No, look, it, it was hard and it wasn't. It was a decision I took very seriously and so did a huge amount of due diligence in terms of selecting the partner that we wanted to work with. And so I guess our experience with Woolworths, even though it sort of hadn't worked out in a long-term sense, my experience was absolutely that, well, if you bring in the right partner at the right time, then it really can help to accelerate the growth. And I'd still, you know, really wanted to see, you know, without constraints what a door could do. And so, yes, Jason, I made the decision that we, that we would we would look for a partner and we were sort of open as to, to what that would look like and and very, very happy with that decision. Actually, I've never regretted it for one minute. Quadrant really, you know, really backed us in terms of our culture and values. I think that was my biggest concern was that, you know, because people tell all sorts of stories about private equity and, and that they that they would somehow try and change us or, try and make us do things differently and they never did that. Mm. And I I spoke to, I would have spoken to, I don't know, maybe twelve or thirteen other founders that they'd worked with and that was universally the experience of everyone is that look, you know, that's sort of not really their style and they don't want to come into a business and crush what made it great in the first place, which, you know, makes a lot of sense to yeah, me. Why would you yeah. want to do that? So So they brought I mean, they brought certain skills, but you'd already had enormous success up to mm-hmm. September 2019, hadn't you? Yep. Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And so, so the business was still going great, but we thought, well, look, you know, there's there's certainly some things that we could do if we had access to a bit more capital. I think there's there's a strategic way that they look at that they look at a business that we that we really liked, and I think. You know, my experience is that sometimes bringing in people with a different experience and different skill set really does help to add a lot of value because it gets you out of just the bubble of your own thinking. Mm. And for me, I mean, all I've really ever done is this. Yeah. (laughs) And so my experiences are limited and they brought experiences of having done this with like 70-odd other businesses. And I thought, well, that, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so they helped you perhaps set you up for the next phase of growth? That was always very much what it was about. And so that was kind of the plan that we worked out with them is that, you know, set up for the next stage of growth, get all of the things ready, and that eventually we, we kind of put this plan together of, okay, well, when, when we reach these particular milestones, then we would IPO. Yeah. So in October last year, 2020, you did IPO. So you had you listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. Adore Beauty was in fact called by one of the media. It's one of the hottest listings of the year. So apart from netting you and your husband just under $100 million, you sold 40% of your shares. Was it a little scary? Was it thrilling? You must have been very proud of your success. I would say all of the above, yes. Definitely terrifying. Definitely just so exciting. And for me, yeah, it really was. It actually really was a very proud 
moment, like for, for Adore as a team to go, <laughs> okay, well, we came from nothing and to make it all the way here is I, like, I don't think I would ever have dared to dream that big from the garage 20 years ago like that. Just, you know, it seemed impossible and out of reach and something that only other people did. And so, yeah, it, it really, it really, it really was a proud moment, but yeah, oh, absolutely terrifying. And we did it all from, we did the whole process from lockdown here oh, in Melbourne. Exactly. In really still in the middle of the COVID pandemic. But Smack as in the you middle say, of it. Smack in, in the middle of it. Melbourne was in that very strict lockdown. So, mm -hmm. uh, well, there's a number of questions I still want to sort of quickly ask you. But uh, so how has the transformation been to a public company so far? It's only been, what, less than six months. Less than six months, yeah. An adjustment, I imagine, for an entrepreneur. You know, you and James have made all the decisions and now you've not only got other shareholders, you've got the ASX listing rules, you've got, you know, many more legal requirements on you. Yeah, look, there is all of that. And so, look, there's a certain extra weight of, you know, administration in making sure that you, you know, get everything right from from the ASX perspective and we you know we understand that and that's that's a responsibility and that's just kind of part and parcel the, of what goes with it. I think it's actually I mean yes in some ways or no we don't you know get to make all the decisions by ourselves anymore but I guess the upside of that is that you know we we get the benefit of many more <laughs> clever people in terms of making the decision so our board is absolutely amazing we've got one of only six majority female boards on the entire asx well done congratulations well i'd say why we even have to congratulate uh, people exactly so anyway we i mean i can start on my my feminist ranting but then we'll be here all day so <laughs> look, but, but that is something sorry just briefly that is something that you really want to pursue and, and make sure that the female perspective, the female place at the table is very strongly evident. Well, this is the thing. And that was, that was one of the things that kind of shocked and horrified me to discover during the process was that, you know, was that we were the largest you know, business to IPO with, with a female founder and, and CEO, like ever. And I thought, it's 2020. Like, how is that? How is that? How is that a thing? That's why amazing. Facts. You know, why is this so unusual? What I was saying was that, you know, I guess there's a great benefit that comes from having wonderful and experienced people on mm. your board, you know, and our new CEO, well, she's not new anymore, but our CEO, Tanil, who joined the business last year is phenomenal. And I think it's wonderful for the business that it gets the benefit of all of those extra super smart people rather than just me and James when you still get us because we're still there and we still have a majority of our shares. But, you know, it's kind of, I see it as a value add. I mean, if you look at the size of the beauty industry, like it's still, what is it, like an $11 billion industry and the the online penetration of beauty in Australia is still still a long ways behind like the US and the UK and then even further behind like South Korea and China. Like they're like 40, 50% of, of the beauty industry is online. And so there's so far for us still to go yeah. that we want to have, you know, we want to have the best 
the best brains in Australia on this and, you know, be able to grow without the constraints that we had for the first, you know, 20 years or so. So it's, it's actually really exciting. Yeah. Are some of those markets in Asia on your horizon? Oh, look, you know, like I said, we still, we're getting a huge amount of interest from all different yeah. sorts of countries, so you never know. In 2020, we, we got off the track because you listed in the middle of the Melbourne very strict, yeah. tough lockdown. But how yeah. did the COVID pandemic impact you? I mean, did it actually help your business financially and operationally like it did for many online businesses? Well, yeah, look, I mean, I, I guess it did. And really what it kind of did was fast forward us like 18 months in the space of Two months. Wow. So that was that was certainly a that was certainly a scale up challenge. I mean, our, you know, all of a sudden our order volumes pretty much just like doubled overnight, and really at the same time. Oh yeah, like just out of nowhere, and and so of course we hadn't planned for that for that volume, and because uh, we weren't expecting to be doing that until you know sort of Christmas twenty twenty one, and all of a sudden it was it was right here and it was right now, and and so that was. That was a pretty interesting few weeks to try and to try and scale up that quickly and and obviously to continue to try and also at the same time keep our team safe. Exactly. And particularly too in the early days where there wasn't a lot of information and you know, nobody knew what was going on or how long this was going to last or, you know, how bad it was going to get. Like it was all very, very uncertain. And so we were kind of trying to simultaneously scenario plan for, you know, having doubled the sales or possibly we were going to get shut down. We didn't know. And so that was, that was, oh. <laughs> was some interesting scenarios. We're sort of, you know, thinking to ourselves, okay, because we, I mean, you remember in New Zealand, they went into that very hard lockdown where literally people were just in their houses and yeah. there was nothing open at all, like yeah. not even online or anything. And we didn't know whether that was going to happen here or, so, we're, you know, how long could we survive on the cash that we had and, and all of that sort of stuff? So yeah. that, was, that was an interesting time. I guess you had to swivel to your office staff, had to perhaps work from home. But did you have to increase your warehouse no. space or increase the shifts right. everybody worked? Yes. Well, we, yes, yes to both of those. So obviously our office team all had to immediately pivot to working fully remotely and we'd only had a trial of doing that like just a few days before pretty much oh, the whole country really? to lockdown. So we, because we'd sort of thought we could sort of, I mean, you remember what it was like, you could sort of, there was more and more and more in the papers about it every day and then yeah. things were starting to be pretty weird and then everyone, you couldn't buy hand sanitizer or toilet paper anywhere and and we'd, we'd sort of thought, oh, geez, I think we better, you know, let's just make sure that if we all have to work from home that everything actually works from a, from a technological mm. perspective. And then, yeah, so we, we had to pivot to going fully remote and we're only actually just starting to get back into the office now. Yeah, and then what happened with your warehouses? And then with the warehouse, again, so that was, you know, obviously the team, we had sort of two main priorities during that time that we communicated to the whole team. We want to protect your health. We want to protect your jobs. So those are the, those are the two things that we're going to try and work towards and certainly our customers from the way that they were buying certainly they really needed us to be there for them too and and so we 
we, oh gosh, so we had, you know, double the amount of, of orders to get out. We didn't want to suddenly double the amount of people that were in the warehouse because we wanted to try and keep some social mm. distancing. And so we ended up splitting into sort of two shifts, like two bubbles. Yeah, right. And with like an hour in between each shift for deep cleaning and, and all of that so that at least we could we could get more orders out but that we could keep everybody sort of spaced out and safer and that was, you know, so that was a lot for the team to deal with. It was a very quick change and adjustment. It was scary for everybody. Nobody yeah. likes, yeah. Nobody likes what, change. Nobody likes rapid change. What do you think you learnt about yourself even as a leader and a manager and about your business through COVID? I think I learned that I'm quite well suited to a crisis, actually. Well, that's <laughs> handy. That well, I know, right? I guess that's a skill that, you know, that I learned from those, you know, from those times sort of in the earlier on days where we thought we were going to run out of money. And, you know, so usually we were just the only ones having a crisis all by ourselves, but this time it was the whole country. So I guess that was the new part. I think we actually sort of handled it reasonably well in in retrospect like there's not a lot that I look back on and go oh well you know we really we really messed that up I think you know we we planned as much as we could we communicated as much as we could which you know that our team have have said since that they just found really valuable and reassuring because everyone was very frightened and and so we started doing these sort of daily videos as soon as there were changes to restrictions or changes to advice to actually communicate that via video with the team, you know, sending that out remotely and sharing via all our comms channels, I think really helped everybody just feel feel like the, the grown-ups were in charge. And even if even if we didn't necessarily have all the answers, then at least we could communicate all the information that we had. I think the other thing that was really useful at the time was getting together getting together a kind of war room of other online retailers, which I, I put together quite early on when things were starting to get a bit crazy, just so that people could share information and, um, I, you know, support each other because there were, there were online retailers that were, you know, crazy busy like us. There were others whose sales had dropped to almost nothing overnight, you know, the ones that were selling party dresses and things like that, of course, because... Nobody was going anywhere. Mm, mm. And so for those, for that sort of online retail com- business community to be able to support each other, I mean, some of, you know, businesses the size of a door, we had, we had resources to be able to deal with things. You know, we have an HR team that could, you know, sort of be able to put together policies, you know, coronavirus policies or working from home policies or things like that, that, you know, we sort of hadn't needed. But then to be able to share those with other businesses that maybe, were just, you know, kind of sole proprietors with, um, you know, 10 staff all looking to them for the answers and them not having the answers. So I think that was, I mean, I'd always, you know, I've always believed in just the the sort of the karmic value of of helping and supporting others in your community, but that really, that really drove it home. Yeah. Time, yeah. Kate, What are your markers of success? I mean, just give us a really quick picture of how big is a door in numbers of customer purchases, your sales figures in the the last year, and how many brands do you now sell? We now have, so we have over 260 brands now. Gosh, I mean, thousands and thousands of customers. So I think at the last you know, the last 
update that we gave to the market, we had sort of about 590,000 wow. active customers. It's more than that now, but yeah, look, you know, we got 122 million in revenue for FY20, which was amazing because I think it, you know, a year and a half before that, I was saying, yes, we're going to get to 100 mil and it seemed impossibly big. And then we sort of knocked that out of the water. Wow. Oh, gosh, yeah, it's yeah, a team of about 200 now, you know, launched a YouTube channel not quite a year ago that's already had 5 million views. So, yeah, it's, it's, all, getting, it's all getting pretty big, Helen. Extraordinary. I do have a couple of questions. They can be sort of rapid fire, really. It doesn't have to be a long answer. I'm asking most sure. of my guests this. Do you have a life motto? Do I have a life motto? Not really, but there is <laughs> this is one of my favourite little quotes. It's actually from Dory from Finding Nemo, <laughs> which is just keep swimming, just oh. keep swimming. And sometimes I find that useful. It was certainly very useful to me during the IPO process, which I think was the hardest I've ever worked in my life. Just wow. keep swimming. Just keep swimming, yes. One foot in front of the other. Would you do it all again? Yeah, I would, 100%. What's the biggest thing you've learned and what's the biggest thing you've loved on this journey to build your business? Oh, gosh. The biggest thing I've loved is is the people. So the team that I get to work with and the suppliers that we get to work with and, and just, you know, the thing that still always makes my day is is getting lovely messages from customers that just, you know, for me that always just makes it all worth it. Biggest thing I've learned, gosh, I think the value of of you know, the value of having values and of sticking to them and even if it you know seems difficult at the time, I think it is, you know, it is always worth it. And, uh, you know, certainly that, that value of helping others and, and putting out into the world the energy that, that you want to create, I think is just really important. What's the hardest thing you've had to do in your business journey? Oh. <laughs> Uh, doing an IPO is not something I'd want to do every lockdown. I think that was actually probably the hardest thing. Yeah, that was that was extraordinarily intense. What advice would you give to those who would love to try and do, if not exactly what you've done, but would love to pursue their idea, back themselves, start their own business? I think you have to go for it and I think you have to actually do it so you, you know, don't wait until you feel confident because you're not going to feel confident. You need to build confidence from actually doing it. And so that's that's really the only way. You actually just have to get started. What are you obsessed about at the moment? That could be a, a book, a cause, a film. What am I obsessed about at the moment? Uh, well, look, you know, I'm always obsessed about women's issues. I read another article yesterday saying that venture capital hit record highs in 2020, but even less of it went to women. 2.2% of it went to women-founded businesses and that just boils my blood. I can't handle it. So yeah, I'm always, as everyone in our team knows, or anyone who follows me on Twitter knows, prepare for a feminist rant at any time. Well, you're obviously living proof that venture capitalists really should take more care to back 
women founders, Kate Morris. Should they? Absolutely. <laughs> it's been an enormous pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Helen. It's been really fun. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.